0: By doing so, you will be supporting meaningful Jewish educational content, funding the next generation of leaders, as well as furthering Jewish wisdom to people all over the country and all over the world. Please visit www.valleybateedrosch.org. Thank you so much, and enjoy the program. Professor Lori Zoloth is the Margaret E. Burton Professor of Religion and Ethics in the Divinity School at this and the Senior Advisor. To the Provost for Programs on Social Ethics at the University of Chicago. A leader in the field of religious studies with particular scholarly interest in bioethics and Jewish studies, Professor Zoloth's research explores religion and ethics, drawing from sources ranging from biblical and Talmudic texts to postmodern Jewish philosophy, including the writings of Emmanuel Levinas. Professor Zoloth, thank you for taking time to talk.
1: Of course. Thanks for asking me.
0: Well, to jump right in, um, what are some of the areas of scientific and technological advances that you find most exciting today?
1: So I'm working right now, this summer, on thinking about a project that's been run, led by the Imperial College of of London, Um, and it's a coalition of people who are interested in malaria. Now, you don't really hear much talk about malaria when you think about high-tech advances, because malaria is one of the many neglected tropical diseases, but it's a disease that kills nearly half a million people every single year. And that's mostly um, persons of color, mostly kids under five. So several years ago, about three years ago, I encountered a geneticist who was working on malaria and trying to think about these new techniques of CRISPR-Cas9 and trying to apply them to the insect world, not the human world. And I was thrilled because I waited my entire career to think about a scientist who was both at the cutting edge of technology and interested in the poor and the diseases of the poor. And so, Austin Burt, who leads the project and established a coalition of nonprofit groups and academics, has used a mechanism that happens in nature called a gene drive. Every now and then, um, in nature and natural populations, primarily in insects, but in mammals too, a genetic trait is inherited that's not to the advantage of an individual, but to the advantage of a species population, and it sweeps across a species. And so, Burt thought, if I could harness that and sweep a trait across mosquito populations, then we could reduce the number of mosquitoes that are carrying malaria reduce the biting rate. That's a really exciting idea, but it's, it's also very scary because what this would be, would be a way to control and eventually eliminate certain species we don't like. is gambi, pretty much everyone agrees, it's probably one of the most deadly organisms, creatures in the world, mosquitoes. Have killed an enormous number of people throughout world history, and Gambianopheles gambi carries the worst version of malaria, and is the most aggressive mosquito that carries it. So, there's not too much upset about that particular species, but there is obviously upset about yeah. could this be used for other species? And this it's an interesting debate. So, so if, that's, that's the debate I'm looking at right now.
0: Um, I think it's totally amazing, and is the is the main reason. Um, why there is less scientific innovation in the global south, simply a funding issue?
1: Malaria um, research has always been underfunded, Malaria um, and bed nets too, and vaccines too, and everything against these diseases has always been historically underfunded. It's funded um, that WHO has about 50% of what it needs just to do the normal things to combat malaria, so it's hard to get research money for these diseases. As you know, research is funded in a very skewed manner, a biased manner, so, especially in the United States, diseases that, that affect senators, right. typically men, typically older men, white men, um, tend to be robustly funded, and ones that, that affect just you know, poor children in Africa, not so much. Right.
0: Okay, so on the flip side, what are some of the biggest downsides of some of the scientific and medical innovations that we're seeing today? And what are some of the potential harmful ramifications that will be at play if not addressed?
1: A broad category of this is, <laughs> that we don't really know the implications of something like CRISPR-Cas9. Now, anyone who attends to suffering, anyone who addresses human health and illness, anyone who sees children dying, children suffering, wants desperately to have medical research on these on these diseases, not only malaria, but all the diseases that really affect us, cancer, leukemias, blood disgraces, all the diseases that, that, that harm our children, right? Um, but the way they're thinking of doing it is a tremendously powerful innovation called gene editing, and they have a new tool that they think will work really well. CRISPR-Cas9, you've read about CRISPR. And what that does is that inserts a new DNA sequence into the existing DNA strands. But the trouble is they don't have much power over exactly where it goes. There can be off-target effects, um, and the implications of the off-target effects always are borne by the first people to try it, the first people in clinical trials. Sometimes I hear, like today, there was a new story about altering sperm to delete a single gene, a single point mutation. And the question was, really, they know what they're doing. And to get, that, get this CRISPR um, technology to work, they had to, they had to uh, um, send an electric current among all these sperm, which seemed like, well, that doesn't really happen normally. And of course, that's going to have some, some effects, maybe mostly benign, but surely undiscovered. So there's a gap between what we want to do, the new power of molecular biology, and what really, really is known. And, and that's, that's one of the puzzles of doing bioethics at this time. Right, great. We would love for them to know it perfectly, yeah. not quite.
0: Right. So we know what the role of research institutes uh, institutions are and, the, and the, the importance of the role of government and the private sector. Mm-hmm. What is the most important role of religion here, uh, especially the Jewish tradition, and how we think of technology and medical ethics at large?
1: So governments fund, NIH funds most of the research in, in the United States. Um, now increasingly, private people are funding it, which is a little worrisome because private people have, of course, private agendas. Um, religion really is the language of discourse around health and illness and suffering and dying. So without that language, without the, the tragic um, notion of suffering that's carried in religious traditions, you really can't have um, really full discussion about what research should be. and how we should regard illness in general and how, how, how these powerful tools could be handled. So bioethics in general raises questions. Um, <laughs> I tell people that it's kind of like being a Jewish mother, you're always a little worried on what they're doing, right? So, but, that's, but seriously, well, that's true, but seriously, um, what's important about religion is religion has always regarded technology quite seriously. And the questions that have emerged from New um, discoveries in ast- astronomy and cosmology and in molecular biology and physics have always been taken up by religious traditions, in particular Judaism, as you know, um, because of Maimonides, We know very obviously that medical research and medical science that he was doing, he was interested in. He was interested in Aristotle's research, such as it was, but he was interested in how the human body worked and saw the study of the human body and the research on the human body as very much part of how he saw his faith. That the more knowledge one gained from Ibolandi's, the closer to knowing, having complete knowledge, the more holy one was. And that really was he really meant knowledge of God in the Aristotelian sense. But because he was a physician, he also he also meant knowledge of how the world really worked, how science happened, how things were put together. Sure. So that that inquiry has always been a part of what was permissible to know um, in Judaism and permissible to study and physicians were always highly regarded in the tradition and we carry that forward as we as we see um, new science and new advances. Yeah.
0: So I've studied a fair amount of Immanuel Levinas and I have also uh, studied a little bit of, me- of medical ethics uh, but I've never seen the two intersect. What is just one contribution that Levinas can make towards uh, this field of Jewish medical ethics?
1: Well, I use Levinas to think through everything, um, wow. of course, because I'm so struck with his notion that ethics is the first philosophy. So instead of turning to say Manuel Kant, who sort of hated religion and hated deontolo- anything with his own deontological intuitive systems, you turn to Levinas and who, who dismantles these assumptions of Greek philosophy well, at the same time loving them, of course, because you read Levinas, you know, he both has an affection for them, but also he questions the, the the focus on the self. That's so much a part of the philosophy. So much of it is ontology, discovery of what is it, who I am and what, what can I know? The contribution of Levinas, of course, is to the capacity for interruption, the interruption of the totality of human life by the radical intervention of the face. And when you regard the face of another, especially for Levinas, the eyes of another, the face is naked and the face is vulnerable. Um, he has a lovely line, that ca- he says, the face carries the commandment thou shall not kill. And the vulnerability of the face is central to his thought. Now, of course, that's a very important um, idea and a very important concept when you're thinking about how medicine should be limited, by always thinking about the primacy of the face, the primacy of the needs of the other, and of the ceaseless um, call of the other that should interrupt your work Focus and ground your work so that so much of science now largely because of the funding distortions because of the pressure to publish the pressure to get tenure the pressure to get your own lab funded There's often as we saw with the tragic Jeffrey Epstein disaster People going and meeting and hanging out and seeking money from from the wealthy Instead of thinking starting from what do the poor need? What do the and so that's, that shift can be very problematic. Levinas is always a correction against of that in many of his works.
0: Yeah. Does that, does the, the primacy of the face and the dignity of the other push us, push us away from a consequentialist ethic?
1: It, it does, absolutely. Because of course, Judaism is deontological, but a modified deontology. Because we look at the consequences, we don't disregard what happened with our, with our mitzvot and our commanded life. And so then we you come back into the into the room of the study house and say, well, how did that work <laughs> for Rabbi Tarpon, right? Or how did that work for Rabbi Yosef? So and then, so then then the consequences modify the essentially deontological system.
0: Mm-hmm. Great. So shifting gears a little bit, um, you may have noticed we live in politicized, polarized times. <laughs> <Yeah>. <laughs> <laughs> that plays out in lots of different aspects of our of our society, um, and for us as as members as citizens. But I wonder how does that play out for you um, in your Judaism, in your in the thought and practice of your Jewish life? Um, how does that politicization of everything sort of uh, uh, affect that for you?
1: So it turns me towards people like Hannah Arendt uh-huh. and Margaret Sussman. Uh-huh. Um, what, Margaret Sussman is one of the lost Jewish women's voices I'm trying to redeem here, who worked in the interwar period and was one of the few people who was friends with both Martin Buber and Christian Sholem, actually. Um, but who had, along with Arendt, this notion of the importance of discourse in the public square, mm. the importance of, of ha- bringing your conversation into the open and into public. For Arendt, of course, it's a lot, the loss of the public square mm. that is the horror of fascism. And so this notion that you have to confront face-to-face and make your best arguments, um, also a premise of rabbinic thought, yeah. this is really important for us to remember to do. And right now it's gonna be hard because people are polarized, but it doesn't mean you should retreat and only hang out with people that agree with you, because then you, it's this incredible loss of the public, loss of the discourse possibilities that really make citizenship possible. So, that need to go in again, I'd like a face to face encounter, I'd like a trade union discussion, or that sort of a town hall meeting rather than tragically internet. But at least this notion that you keep making your arguments, because the, hopefully the strength of the argument is what makes. America Possible—a good argument for democracy is still, I think, has power. So I think that's one thing that is helpful. The rabbinic method is about disagreement. It's about argument. It's about uh, arguing until you come to at least a stalemate, if not a solution. And that, oftentimes, people are afraid of the argument, argumentative style. But I think it's something we should we can claim and not not be terrified about. Yeah. The problem is the truth claim. The problem is that we don't agree on facts. I'm writing um, today, I'm writing a piece on climate change and on water use and how little water there is mm-hmm. and how it disappears, for instance, in Guatemala, which drives people north to press against the wall. Um, we have to agree what the statistics are. We have to agree how much water there is and, and how much water we need. And we have to agree on facts. And the tragedy is the, is the confusion around the actual real and what, what we can count on as factual. So, for Judaism, for Jews all over, whatever your denomination, this insistence on, on truth claims, I think, is gonna be very important for us. And that's, that has consistently been hard in politicized narratives.
0: Well, well so one of the, th- one of the uh, amazing things you said is the importance of reviving that public sphere of discourse. Uh, but how do you revive a commitment to facts? How do you respond to those who right. attack sort of right. the basic epistemology of, of, our, mm-hmm. of our world?
1: So Kant says there's three questions which is, um, what can I know? What ought I to do? And for what can I hope? And I like those questions. I, I like raising questions about what does it mean to be free and what do I do about suffering others? But I do think the question of how can I know has to be settled first before we can get into the question of normativity, how, how, what ought I to do? Or even for optimism for what can I hope? This notion um, of fact-based Teaching and fact-based training is gonna be really important. And you see it, you see it on the left and on the right. You know, it's it it's it's this um, idea that you can make up a story and that narration is more important than facticity. it can be quite problematic. I'm not sure what to do, honestly, about um, this difference with facts. When you when I, I have a really good friend in high school from high school, and we have a high school, you know, internet discussion group. And we're sitting around discussing what it is to be old or something about our past. And every now and then he breaks in because he works for the American Enterprise Institute and he breaks in with this nonsense about climate change, just made up stories, nonsense. And I wrote to him recently and I said, privately just between us, do you really believe this or do you just really not want government regulations? Like changing his, and he didn't answer, but I'm still on that question. Is it a fact that we're talking about that we disagree with? Or is it that people are terrified about something else? And it plays out as this anxiety around what's real and what's true. What they're really saying is, I'm afraid of in my life. I, I, I'm afraid that you'll take something from me. I'm thinking about how it's so much of it is tied to property. This notion that I own the earth and it's mine. And my little piece of it is so important to me. My little, my little job and my little my meat eating or whatever, my hamburger is so important. And any threat to that is so terrifying. Mm-hmm. And we should, it's, or, of course Americans do this because John Locke told us to think that. I mean, he said, this is your land, mix your labor power, and then you possess it. And it's that that different with Judaism, our notion that we don't own any of this. Yeah. This isn't, this is God's. And so you don't, you this, this confusion of possession, we can really offer some different language too, I think, right. this right. notion that This is weird. We are tenant farmers on this land. We're here only by literally the grace of God And we better take good care of it because there's nothing permanent about it. It's all contingent. So that that kind of um Surfacing the fear that's behind the confusion around facts. I think would probably be the best way to go Wow,
0: Wow. okay, so I have a million things I want to say but but I'll move to our last question um
1: that as,
0: um, as, as a religious Jew, as one who identifies as modern Orthodox Jew, how do you experience any tensions between the academic study of religion and your personal practice?
1: So about 30 years ago, 25, 30 years ago, a group of us in the American Academy of Religion who were trained as moral philosophers, people who studied Levinas and Rosenzweig and Cohen. Um, but loved the Talmud and loved Jewish study. Would meet at eleven o'clock at night just to do textual study together. And you know, our, our colleagues in Talmudic studies would meet with us, only slightly mocking our, us. But we would try to use the skills of philosophy and the, the questions of philosophy addressed to Talmudic texts. And after doing that for about a year or so, two years or so, in a process we call it textual reasoning, um, we met with Christians. We found Christians found us. <laughs> um, and we began reading together shared texts, and then a few years later we we um, decided we couldn't read the shared texts of Judaism and Christianity without Islam, and we invited Muslim scholars. All of this was quite controversial, um, because sometimes people didn't want to talk to the Muslims or want, didn't want to study with the Muslims, and sometimes Jews were very protective of their texts, and oh no, we have to have fourteen commentaries and we thought, no, let's just talk about these texts and study these texts And so we met in a process called scriptural reasoning, in which Jews and Christians and Muslims who are people who take religion seriously, who um, believe that there's something special about the scripture and that these scriptural texts are true and are carried by the reception community over centuries because they speak to them in a way that's quite distinctive from say a novel, which are also good, but different from scripture. And that for me has always been a way to be um, faithful to my own practice, which deepens me and makes me a better scholar and hopefully a better person and yet maintains my scholarly authority, maintains my my sense that I have to really take, respons- take responsibility for the centuries of Western philosophy that I care about as well. And so holding those things in tension all the time has been very, very fruitful. It's a very fruitful discourse to think about these, these two sources of, 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 of important um, narratives and important, uh, important rules for me. Yeah. Against that, you put something like, well, what did we do about malaria? Or is gene drive a safe technology? Or can we change people's sperms? Against that, you put a question. And then you have two different sources of responses. Um, I'm not a rabbi, and I'm not trained halakhically, but I am trained academically. And I, when I write, I write from a very distinctive position. And I leave the halakhic authority to you <laughs> and to, to people who, who have those skills.
0: Uh, incredibly insightful. Thank you, Professor Zoloth. You can find many of her writings online, and uh, we continue to hope to learn from you more in the the coming years. Thank you.